and thank you for listening to the history of World War II podcast, episode 266, The Fall of Borneo. Last time, Japanese forces came to the oil-rich island, making land on December 16th. Right away, phase one, the taking of the Miri and Seria oil fields along the northern coast, was accomplished. Now it was time to go after the capital of Sarawak, Kuchin, to the west, which also had an impressive airfield nearby. Yet, as the island was mostly inhospitable, except along some places of the coast, the invading troops would have to go by boat and have to make another amphibious landing. But more besides, just south of the capital was Sarawak's border with the Dutch-controlled part of the island, collectively called Kalimantan, and near that border was another modern airstrip that the Dutch hoped the Japanese didn't know about. Either way, the defensive plan now was to deny the invaders both airstrips and Kutchen as long as possible. Lieutenant Colonel Charles M. Lane, commanding officer of Sarfor, made up of the Punjabis unit and the Sarawak Rangers, totaling 2,565 men, saw that it was pointless to try to stop the Japanese from coming ashore, so pulled back to the airfield and asked General Archibald Wavell, Commander-in-Chief India, if he could retreat into the jungle. This was granted. Still, Lane had a surprise in store for the enemy who had had a relatively easy time of it further up the coast. The Japanese landed just above Kuchin at 11 a.m. December 24th and were probably expecting another formal surrender. Instead, men from the 2nd Battalion, 15th Regiment, Punjab, attacked the Japanese as they came ashore, but right away communications became sketchy as telephone lines were some of the first casualties of the invaders. So the defenders soon retreated. But this was not cowardice on their part. For differing units not to be able to talk with each other, nor with headquarters, is a recipe for disaster. Besides which, this was not to be the all-out defensive stand. Hence, before the sun set on Christmas Eve, the city of Kuchin was occupied, and the Allied forces protecting the airfield were within sight of the Japanese. But as the various defensive positions could not communicate, each one could not only know when a nearby unit was captured, they themselves had no idea when they were about to be come upon by enemy troops. In this manner, even the chief secretary himself, Cyril Drummond Lee Gross Clark, the person in charge of the government for the White Raja, was taken captive. Unfortunately, Clark would be killed by the Japanese just two months short of the war's end. So not only were the armed forces gobbled up piece by piece, but their vehicles, weapons, and equipment of all types in working condition became a part of the Japanese effort. As the defensive units did not know of each other's condition or exact location, when one was captured, they could not answer the enemy's questions about anyone else. Hence, the three battalions of invaders were forced to march around Kuchin, stumbling upon enemy forces that, for the most part, did not fight back, but made sure that their surrender was formal and orderly. These units were mostly of the Sarawak Rangers. 
So at 4 p.m. on Christmas Eve, eight days after Mary fell, Kutchin, near the northern coast, surrendered. Again, many of the Brook officers stayed at their post, which made it easy for the Japanese to find them. To humiliate the white men, the Japanese marched them through what streets existed, probably expecting the locals to jeer at their former masters. But this was not the case. From the day Brooke himself ruled the area, the welfare of the people was one of his main concerns, and this was carried down throughout the years. Hence the locals were silent as the Europeans were prodded before them. Fortunately for the Brooke personnel, their walk was short, as they were taken to an internment camp at Batu La Tang, just outside Kuchin. For all intents and purposes, the Sultanate of Brunei and Sarawak were out of the war. Now came the turn of British North Borneo and the southern Dutch half. Those men of the 2nd 15th Punjab that had not been captured retreated south from Kuchin, but as the Japanese were already in the area, they were able to follow the Indians, who now were forced to fight as they withdrew. As for the defenders, their goal was not to regroup and attack the Japanese. That wasn't possible. No, Borneo's salvation lay somewhere in the future, and hopefully it would be the same for these men. On Christmas morning, all was silent, but then the Japanese engaged the Commonwealth forces at the airfield which was south of Kuchin. Fearing that Lieutenant Colonel Lane was about to retreat again, thus drawing out the battle, men from the Japanese Special Landing Force were ordered to launch a full-scale attack. The fighting was intense, often hand-to-hand, as two of the Punjab companies were told to stay put in a delaying action. That order, and their carrying it out, caused the two companies to be completely wiped out but their sacrifice gave their comrades the time they needed to retreat to the west into Dutch territory. At 4.40 p.m. on Christmas Day, the Japanese took the airfield, as it was now undefended. Thus far, the Japanese had lost 100 men killed and another 100 wounded. While the invaders consolidated their gains at Kuchin and at the nearby airfield, a smaller convoy was sent around the northwest corner of Borneo to take the Dutch-controlled Tembalon Island just off the west coast, across from the city of Sekawang, the first Dutch loss of territory in the Pacific War. As the British force retreated, the Sarawak Rangers were disbanded, as they were only to protect their country. As that part of the fighting was over, they were released. This left Lane and his Punjabis to move out on their own. It took a few weeks, but eventually Lane and company reached the 750-man Dutch force, protecting their airstrip. As he was now a guest, Lane put his men under Dutch control. Now, together, they would defend the airstrip that could, if in Japanese hands, threaten Singapore. The Japanese plan was to attack this airfield from the north and west, after landing some of their men on the northwestern coast. But bad weather delayed this action. Then, the bad weather continued. In fact, not until January 24th did the disembarkation begin. 
Also, five Japanese companies moved out from Kuchin on the 24th, using one of the few roads that existed. By January 25th, those men coming south were only two and a half miles north of the Dutch airstrip. Not wanting the Japanese to get any closer, the combined Dutch-British force launched their own attack against the Japanese on the 26th. But this was repulsed by the larger group of men. And having more men, some of the Japanese troops from Kuchin were sent around to the west on the Dutch-British left flank, which was successfully turned. The always hopeless situation was now impossible. On January 17th, the order to evacuate the airfield was given. The combined force went south, Toledo, about 15 miles to the southwest. However, back on the 25th, additional Japanese troops, three companies worth, had been put on small transports and sent around to land on the west coast, near Pamankat, in between the island's northwest corner and Sinkawang. Both cities and the land around them were secured, and then the Japanese began to push eastward. They would soon be in a position to cut off the combined force from any further retreating to the south. Still, the Allied troops used the knowledge the Dutch had of the land and got out of there. The jungle, which had tormented the Europeans and Indians, was now their savior. The defenders went south, hoping to make their way to another, though smaller, Dutch airstrip at Kota Waringen. Yet, as this was close to the southern coast, they would be in-country for some time. With the Dutch and the British out of the way, other towns along the island's west coast were captured. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Dutch Borneo, like its British counterpart, had plenty of oil, but not enough troops. Kalimantan had two major oil-producing areas, one on the island of Tarakan on the northeastern coast, just below British North Borneo, and the other along the southeastern coast at Balikpapan. For what Dutch troops were on the island of the Royal Netherlands East Indies Army, or KNIL, 
They were scattered around these two places, and the Dutch capital, Benjarmassen, on the southern coast. Balik Papan had just over 1,000 men defending it, the capital a mere 500, and Tarakan had another 1,000, but also two field artillery batteries and coastal batteries, as it was an island. But doing a bit better than the British, the Dutch had brought in some fighters and bombers before the invasion. Yet these were older American models, which showed how strongly, or not, the Dutch felt about their chances of holding their part of Borneo. As had the British, the Dutch began destroying their facilities back on December 8th, just after Pearl Harbor. But again, Japanese engineers were in lockstep with the soldiers as they conquered the island, piece by piece, ready to make good any repairs. But the Dutch weren't simply going to wait their turn. One, they guessed that the British and Brunei would be attacked first. And two, having lost their mother country, there were more assets on the island, as there was no Netherlands to defend. So back on December 19th, as the Japanese were repairing the oil facilities along the north coast, having only been there for three days, Dutch bombers came from the south, and two Dutch Dornier DO-24 flying boats from Tarakan Island flew over the now-Japanese oil fields at Miri and Seria and attacked the Japanese fleet. Amazingly, considering the superiority of the Japanese weapons, in quality and quantity, the destroyer Shinonome was sunk and a nearby transport was damaged. So, when the convoy left from Brunei and went west to make for Kachin, the Japanese were on the lookout for Dutch planes. The fleet departed on December 22nd, but was spotted early on by a Dutch reconnaissance plane on the morning of the 23rd. The Japanese on board those vessels expected the worst, yet anticipating another Dutch airstrike, at 11.40 a.m., 24 Japanese planes bombed the Dutch airfield at Sing Kawang 2, just below Kuchin, rendering its takeoff lanes unusable. When the runway was fixed, the Dutch planes were ordered south, as the Japanese landings were now unstoppable. But the convoy was not out of danger. On the evening of December 23rd, while the Japanese were looking up, they were struck from below as a Dutch submarine, K-14, fired its torpedoes and sank two of the convoy ships and damaged two more. The next night, K-16 scored another hit by torpedoing the INJ destroyer Sangiri. Yet then the K-16 was itself sunk by the Japanese sub I-66. Getting back to the fate of British North Borneo on the most northern tip, on December 28th, Major General Kawaguchi, stationed at Miri, ordered Lieutenant Colonel Watanabe to head out on the 31st to take the rest of the small sultanate of Brunei. Then, two infantry platoons opened up 1942 by landing on the island of Laban, which was undefended. This was vital as much of the oil production was done here. With Brunei now firmly under Japanese control, 
On January 8th, Kawaguchi landed troops at Jesselton, further up the North Borneo coast, roughly in the middle of British North Borneo's coastline. The town was taken. The police were disarmed. Then, using ten fishing boats, Lieutenant Colonel Watanabe was sent with as many men as he could carry around the northern tip to capture Sandakan on the northeastern coast, due east of Jesselton. As Sadakan was the seat of government of British North Borneo, all official resistance ended. On the morning of January 19th, the governor, Robert Smith, surrendered the state, but refused to continue to administer the territory under Japanese control, so he became a prisoner. Lieutenant Watanabe's force then climbed back aboard their fishing boats and finished conquering British North Borneo, taking Lahadatu and Tawa by the end of January. As it was January, enough time had passed to allow the second hammer, in the form of troops from the Philippines, to fall on Borneo. Sixteen transports carrying the Sakaguchi detachment and a special naval landing force from Davao, Mindanao, were making for Tarakan Island with an eye to landing there on January 7th. However, because of the weather, there was another delay. Further, a Dutch reconnaissance plane had spotted the approaching convoy. Thus, the oil facilities on Tarakan were destroyed on January 10th. On that very evening, two groups of Japanese troops were on their landing craft, making for the island. The light from the fires of the burning oil helped them navigate. The right wing of this invasion force landed on the east coast at midnight. Awaiting them were swamplands and KNIL troops, who did resist to the best of their ability. Still, by noon of the next day, January 11th, the men of the right wing were near the main oil field. Here, some of the men were split off to make for the island's airstrip, but battling the jungle almost more than fighting the defenders, this was not reached until the next day, January 12th. With the situation thus, the Dutch officer commanding, Lieutenant Colonel Tewal, offered to surrender, and Colonel Yamamoto accepted, but needed General Sakaguchi's approval. But communications between the units on both sides was less than perfect. Still, both sides understood that this was basically over. So when the left amphibious flank landed at 3 p.m. on January 11th, their goal had been to take the artillery battery on the southern end of the island. The men manning the guns were not aware that their commanding officer had offered to surrender. Neither were the Japanese troops heading towards them. Neither were the two Japanese minesweepers coming around the southern tip and they were now within range of the coastal battery. Soon, both ships disappeared beneath the waves. Duwal apologized and offered to send another signal to avoid any further bloodshed on either side, which wasn't good enough for the Japanese soldiers nearby who witnessed the sinking of the two ships. When the Commonwealth soldiers manning the battery surrendered, the Japanese tied their hands and threw them into the bay. About 219 men drowned.
That same day, January 11, 1942, the Empire of Japan declared war on the Netherlands, though the latter had declared war on this now open enemy back on December 8, 1941, following the lead of London. In reality, the Japanese had held back from their own formal declaration, hoping this would trick the Europeans into not destroying their oil fields, which had not worked. On January 12th, General DeWall formally surrendered, which left the Japanese to commence mop-up operations. Then, two days later, most of the invasion force set sail further down the coast. Their goal this time was Balikpapan, which was more than halfway down the eastern coastline. The Japanese route allowed them to occasionally stop and stake claim to coastal villages, so by January 22nd, the Japanese fleet was almost at their destination. However, the war between the Dutch and the Japanese was not over. The next day, on the afternoon of January 23rd, nine Dutch Martin B-10 bombers, escorted by 20 Brewster Buffaloes, attacked the convoy. One ship was sunk. Another was left seriously damaged. Getting closer to Balikpapan, the Japanese objective, a Dutch submarine, K-18, then sunk the already damaged transport. Yet the sub would be crippled and then forced to flee in time. Still, the Japanese landed what men they had left just north of the airfield, which was itself just north of Balikpapan. There were no defenders on the airfield, which was taken on January 24th. By the next evening, the invading forces were on the northern edge of Balikpapan city. The Dutch troops there had already withdrawn, so the Japanese were able to go along the coast and take the city without a shot being fired. But, as Napoleon himself has said, to take cities without destroying the enemy's army is no victory, and the Dutch force in the area was still at large. The KNIL force had moved north of the city, with a view to heading more north to clear the waters of the Balikpapan Bay, which would then allow them to turn west and make for the interior of the island. However, before the Japanese had come ashore, a unit called the Surprise Attack Force was peeled off, put on their own ships, and sent inland up the waterway. As the wavy course inserted itself into the island, this allowed the Surprise Attack Force to land further north of Balikpapan, thus cutting off the only escape route open to the Dutch troops. The surprise attack force had landed on the afternoon of January 25th, completely undetected by the Dutch soldiers. Which explains why the retreating Dutch ran right into the surprise attack unit and were beaten back. With the city and the areas to the northeast, southwest, and northwest of it subdued, the Japanese had scored another victory, and controlled one of the few sizable settlements on Borneo. The nearby oil fields were given their own detachment to keep them safely in Japanese hands and operational once they were repaired. But not everything was going to go Japan's way in regards to Borneo. 
for the United States Navy was about to make an appearance. Back on January 24th at 2.45 a.m., the 59th U.S. Navy Destroyer Division, commanded by Rear Admiral William A. Glassford, came upon the Japanese convoy from the south that had dropped off men near Balikpapan. These new players on the scene targeted the 12 transport ships and the three patrol boats escorting them. The American force, four Clemson-class destroyers and two cruisers, commenced fire. As for the Japanese destroyers, they had split off to search out the damaged Dutch submarine, which had caused so much trouble earlier. The Americans, still emotional from Pearl, sank four transport ships and patrol boat P-37. Two other transports were damaged, but stayed afloat. As for the four USN destroyers, they got clean away around 4 p.m., reporting no discernible damage. Yet it must be noted that the lost and damaged transports had already discharged their men. Hence, this action did not affect the conquest of Borneo. As things stood, there was only one major city left in Dutch hands, the seat of government at Banjarmasen along the south coast. Further, the fine airfields there would be needed by the Japanese as they pushed on south to begin their conquest of the rest of the Dutch East Indies. Thus far, the Japanese had, wisely, not even tried to cover territory on foot or by vehicle, but simply to load men onto transports and land them near whatever target was next. But for the attack of Benjarmasen in the south, something different was going to be needed, as the Americans and Dutch had sunk many transports. But moreover, Japanese naval forces were being concentrated for attacks on Java and Sumatra. No, this time the Japanese troops would attempt to penetrate the southeastern corner of the island to approach Banjarmasen from the east. But to make sure the Dutch government seat fell quickly, what transports still remained would be used to send one infantry company by sea, in effect trapping Banjarmasen in a pincer movement, one by land, one by sea. On January 27th, the sea unit set out. Three days later, the land unit began their march, but little went according to plan. For one, the bicycles carried by the land unit were worse than useless. These might have been invaluable in other operations, but not in the mountains and jungle of Borneo. Next, the mountain range between them and Banjarmasen forced the marchers to hug the coast, thus making their trek as long as it could be. Then there were the KNIL troops from the capital that had to be dealt with. But honestly, between the jungle, the heat, and the malaria, the enemy troops were the easiest part of the journey. By February 8th, the sea unit, which only moved at night to avoid detection, finally landed troops just south of Benjarmasen. There were no enemy troops to oppose them, as they were the ones who were trying to stall the land route force. The vital airfield stationed due east of Banjarmasen was now directly threatened.
In the city itself, the colonel in charge, with his last 75 men, retreated from the capital and went west along the southern coast. His orders were to reach and defend the airfield at Kotawaringen, the one the combined force had made for previously. But unbeknownst to the colonel and his 75 men, this area had already fallen to Japanese troops from Kuchin. At 9 a.m. on February 10th, the major airfield was solidly in Japanese hands. Then Benjarmasan, the capital, fell as well. With the Japanese in control of most of the west coast, the entire north coast, the majority of the east coast, and much of the south coast, what Dutch and British troops remained free were forced into the jungles of central Borneo. Yet the Japanese would send men after them, reducing the number of rebels even further. Past 1942, when such troops were captured, the Japanese, angry that they had to go out into the terrible environments to get them, simply executed whoever they found. Even worse for the rebel soldiers, the Japanese paid the native Dajaks to seek out the Dutch and execute them. The Dajaks, who were already hostile to the Europeans, were only too happy to do this. But in time, the Japanese proved themselves cruel masters, even to the Dajaks. Hence, the locals would eventually ally themselves with the enemies of Japan. U.S. airmen and a dozen or so Australian special operatives would train the formed Kapit Division in guerrilla warfare. This unit would go on to kill or capture some 1,500 Japanese soldiers, while providing valuable intel on the Japanese-controlled oil fields. By early 1942, what few native soldiers the Dutch still had deserted. This left the combined force in the jungle without hope. So, on April 1, 1942, the vast majority of them surrendered. Now the Japanese Empire had the oil it needed, in the clear, to feed its vast war machine. The entire Battle of Borneo had lasted for 59 days. Total Allied casualties, British, Dutch, and Native, was just over 2,300 killed or wounded, and 871 captured. While the Japanese suffered in this Impressive but underreported victory, 872 battle casualties and 9 deaths from malaria. The northern part of Borneo was renamed by the Japanese Kita Baruno, or just North Borneo. The island of Laban, just off the north coast, was now Mada Shima, or Maida Island. As for the previous Dutch territory, that was now called Minami. Borneo, or South Borneo. The island of Borneo was, for the first time in a long time, perhaps ever, under one rule. Now, the Japanese could look towards their next target, Java and its capital, Batavia. 
Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So it's been a while, so let me just take a moment to thank all the people that have donated, bought mugs, or become members. Uh, obviously, it's very much appreciated. So I would like to thank Joe N. from Williston, North Dakota, who bought a mug. And then there are several members, so bear with me. Um, Steve M. from Pensacola, Florida. Anthony W. from Huddersfield, UK. Deborah K. from Atlanta, Georgia. Neil S. from New Milton, UK, Edwin R. from Abilene, Texas, Lindsay M. from Concord, California, Samuel B. from Jonesboro, Tennessee, Martin D. from Rancho Cucamonga, California, Dale H. from Carmel, Indiana, Charles O. from Moon Township, Pennsylvania, that's my favorite name so far, Bruce A. from Rosemont, Minnesota, Jerome S. from Annapolis, Maryland, Jedediah B. from Powell, Wyoming, Scott L. from La Plata, Maryland, um, let's see here, Mark M. from Manitoba, Canada, Harrison B. from Columbia, Maryland, I think Maryland's winning so far, um, and Michael B. from Boca Raton, Florida. And lastly, um, as far as people who have made donations, I would like to thank Robert P., who sent me a very nice message. And Robert, you're burning through these way too fast. You need to pace yourself, buddy, just like I do. Okay? So I will see you guys hopefully next week with, uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to do Java or if I'm going to go back to Thailand. I'm not really sure yet. We'll see how it goes in the timeline. But um, I'll be back soon because I you know, really feel like we're on a roll and I'm having a lot of fun doing this. Take care, everyone.